0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: you got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless.
2: so crazy about it's just music
0: welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim de the pop music critic at the chicago sun times
1: and i'm greg kott i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i are going to visit with sample based composer greg gillis aka girl talk Plus, we'll talk to the multi-Grammy award-winning artist who beat Elvis to the top of the charts. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. studies in recent days, Jim, telling us a lot about uh, what kind of music we listen to and specifically what our children are listening to. You and I both have daughters that will be affected by some of the data in this study. At they're least in they're these in- demographics. Yes, yeah. exactly. The first study from the NPD group uh, shows that 70% of U.S. kids age 9 through 14 are downloading music in a given month. That's an extraordinary figure. About 50% of them are using iTunes, but 26% of them are using the unsanctioned peer-to-peer file-sharing service LimeWire. That's showing that a lot of these kids are downloading music illegally and could potentially be subject to Recording Industry Association lawsuits. They're chastising parents for not keeping a close enough eye on their children here. (laughs) Uh, NPD analyst Russ Krupnik says the music industry hoped that litigation and education might encourage parents to keep better tabs on their kids' digital music activities. But the truth is, many kids continue to share music via peer-to-peer. But now, wait a minute.
0: They could be getting into all this trouble surfing porn, talking to predators online. Isn't
1: downloading music like a healthy alternative to that stuff? Well, exactly. As any parent knows who has one computer or more, in the house, it's very difficult to monitor exactly what your kids are doing every second. One mouse click, they could download a song while they're doing their homework, and you wouldn't know about it unless you really took the time to investigate what's on their hard drive. So it's really tough to keep up with that stuff. This University of Pittsburgh study that looked at the content of what these uh, songs are saying had an interesting factoid in it, Jim. It said that Americans aged 15 to 18 are listening to 2.4 hours of music a day. So the Recording Industry Association of America, I think, would be really happy about the fact that so many kids are listening to music. But what's in those songs Yeah, with exactly? so much
0: competition from the video games and everything else, you still have kids listening to nearly two and a half hours a day. According to uh, the scientists, though, they hear in that two and a half hours 84 musical references to substance abuse. That adds up to 30000 a year. So this was just published in the archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. Seems to me we do this story like every two years. Yeah. Every two years, the pediatricians of America say popular culture is bad for the kids. They're getting all this sex, all this drugs, all this glorification of criminality, especially through popular music. Yeah, right. movies too, but popular music. And, you know, that's been going on since before there was rock and roll. In the early 50s, there were congressional hearings on how comic books were going to rot kids' heads. And of course, ever since Rock and Roll came in, it's been derided as this juvenile delinquent scourge. Pediatricians, uh, you know, God bless them, but they're
1: really concerned that this stuff is going to ruin kids. And I, I just don't see it. Yeah, I agree with you, Jim. I think, uh, first of all, what's a parent supposed to do about this? Well, I think there's some very sound advice in this one study. Probably a more empowering approach is to teach kids to analyze and evaluate the messages for themselves. So in other words, we're not going to be able to stop our kids from downloading music. We're not going to be able to stop them from hearing music with explicit messages. But as a parent, what you can do is educate your kid, arm your kid to prepare him for what, you know, the choices that are here and then hopefully they'll they'll decide for themselves. Hopefully they can figure it out. I think
0: the best conversation I had with my daughter in 2007 involved the meaning of my humps.
2: <laughs> yeah. Don't criticize it
0: Greg, Peter Tosh sang Legalize It. I think he was smoking some ganja when he did that. And I think that the Italian parliament was doing the same thing recently when they passed this new copyright law, which I think that they were intending to make it harder to swap music files, peer-to-peer file sharing, as much of uh, the American thrust has been lately. But in fact, they made it easier. They made it legal to share music degraded music files meaning any file that wasn't 100% CD quality well you know any mp3 is degraded <laughs> if
1: you have some of these on your on your computer you can share those but you can't share the non-degraded ones yeah right in effect this law has allowed peer-to-peer file sharing to be legalized in Italy they may not have realized they've done it but that's exactly what they've done and throughout Europe we're seeing the tide turning a lot of governments are sort of turning a blind eye To uh, file sharing, they're basically saying we've got more important things to do: wars, health issues. Well, we we don't really care about peer-to-peer file sharing. The German
0: government put it; they called it petty offenses. Don't tie up the court with these cases.
1: They're petty offenses. It'll be interesting to see what happens in in the United States, Jim. There has not been the big Supreme Court ruling about copyright law, whether or not digital file sharing falls under that, uh, and to what degree it does. The recording industry, you can bet would love to get the U.S. government to pass a law saying that this is illegal and you will go to jail. I, I- want to know what's on
0: Clarence Thomas's hard drive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: NASA is celebrating its 50th year this year, and uh, as part of the celebration, it is beaming that song, the Beatles, across the universe into outer space. Paul McCartney, of course, was thrilled. Well done, NASA. Send my love to the aliens. All the best, Paul. (laughs) You know what, Paul? Peace and love, brother. But uh, you know what? The aliens, every time I watch a movie about what the aliens want to do to planet Earth, it's not kind. They're coming down here to kick our butts. They want to eat us. We send a cool song up there. They're going to say, man these peace and love hippies they are going to be easily toppled we want to go down there and dominate these people what do you think? I mean, we got to send something up there It well, says send don't mean. come to our planet. Yeah, like Cannibal
0: Corpse or some great death <laughs> metal to scare them.
1: Or better yet, maybe like Barry
0: Manilow <laughs> or that guy from NSYNC who wants to go to Spain. Like send stuff that makes them never want to come here. <laughs> in, all, in all seriousness, there are two serious questions here that this story leaves unanswered. Number one, is it the Phil Spector orchestrated version or <laughs> the naked version that they're sending of this song? Let it be, right? And the other thing is that, that I'm shocked that Paul did not bring this up is what about the royalty situation? Yeah. I mean, bad enough, period. Peer file sharing on earth but what about you know, how are they going to collect copyrighted royalties from from outer space you know, we made a pledge a long time ago on Sound Opinions that we would only glancingly deal with the Grammys because uh, as, as music awards go, we just don't feel that they get it right all that often, okay? <laughs> However, it is the 50th year celebration of that uh, venerable music awards show, and I thought it would be cool for us to talk to probably the be coolest Best New Artist Grammy Award winner <laughs> ever. <laughs> Without a think? doubt. Without a doubt. Bob Newhart, the famous comedian. Hey, Bob, welcome to Sound Opinions.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Now, people may be wondering why we are talking to Bob Newhart on this, the world's only rock and roll talk show. But Greg and I were fascinated by your history with the Grammys. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you are the single coolest artist ever to win the Best New Artist Grammy <laughs> probably the only cool artist
3: well that's, uh, that says something about the Grammys then. I mean, if, if I'm the coolest then uh, the Grammys are in a lot of trouble
0: well are you aware of the uh, so called curse of the Best New Artist
3: no I don't think so no You
0: know, obviously there have been some credible winners of Best New Artist, but in the music world there have been a lot, like Christopher Cross, who did that song "Sailing," and uh, what was the band Craig that did "Skyrockets in Flight," "Afternoon Delight"? You know, (laughs) there's been some losers, right? And and one of the jokes in, in the music world, Bob, is that you win Best New Artist and you are never heard from again. Now, obviously, you have had one of the most impressive careers in comedy. You know, two hit TV shows. You have this new book out, and the uh, second hit TV show is on DVD.
3: Well, that's, two, that's actually two curses. you got the Billy Goat, of course, curse with, for the Cubs. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. And, but, uh, but this curse is, is nationwide, you know, which makes it even more of a curse, I guess.
1: But you survived it. And on, on your first venture into recording, you won not only Best New Artist, but you won Album of the Year. In 1960, with a button-down mind of Bob Newhart, I mean, your debut album wins the biggest prize in music. I mean, that must have been your socks must have been blown off, right, Bob?
3: Well, if I had known what was going on, they would have been blown off. But I, they just kept calling out my name, and I just kept going up and and getting a Grammy and uh, and thanking people. I mean, I had no, <laughs> I had no understanding of what it meant. I really, I really didn't. I made the album in. Uh, in February in 1960, and then it came out in April, and then it won Album of the Year, along with I think Best Spoken Word. I Abe, sweetheart. How are you? I'll get it, Bert. Now, what's this about Grant? <laughs> You're getting a lot of complaints on Grant's drinking, huh? Abe. <laughs> uh, hey, To be perfectly honest with you, uh, I don't see the problem. I mean, you you knew he was a lush when you pointed him. Then the other thing, I had a record that I, not a record, but an accomplishment that uh, I wasn't even aware of. And that was that I had the number one and number two album on the Billboard charts for the most number of weeks. I think it was 39 weeks or something. Because I had my first album, that I put out the second album. And then the second album went to number one, and the first album went to number two. So I had that, not even knowing I had it, until a couple of years ago when Axl Rose, uh, Guns N' Roses, beat me out uh, for for more number of weeks. Which which was fine with me, because it went to a friend, you know. But, uh,
0: you guys are drinking buddies, right?
3: Yeah, yeah Axe. I just got off the phone with Axe, as a matter of fact. <laughs>
0: No, that's extraordinary. There was a long stint (laughs) There was a long stint where the button down mind of Bob Newhart and and the follow up record uh, were up there with The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, Thriller by Michael Jackson, The Beatles albums as like some of the best selling albums of all time.
3: Somebody told me it still is the twentieth best selling album of all time.
0: There you go. Um, Now are you concerned at all about illegal downloading and peer to peer file sharing people downloading the button down mind of Bob Newhart online?
3: No, because my royalties are so <laughs> minuscule. <laughs> wait a I, I minute. Was... You've
1: got the 20th biggest selling record of all time, and you've got minuscule royalties. I mean, the record companies have been ripping I, you off too?
3: <laughs> I got – well, I, I, I went to Warner Brother Records, and we audited them, them after five years, and they said that they had a fire in the ends. and. Uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> It it didn't it didn't touch the M's or the O's, but it, it, apparently they had, they had this big fire in the ends, and so they they really didn't have any record of, of how many it had sold. Robert so, Johnson
0: but, and then Bob Newhart in yeah. terms of the music. But then, then now
3: this is uh, this maybe ten years ago. I'm uh, I'm talking to George Slaughter about uh, Richard Pryor and what an admirer I was of his, of his work. I thought I thought it was brilliant. I thought he was the most influential voice in the past fifty years and George said, well, we're presenting him with an award would you like to present it to him so i said well yeah so i went to the thing and, and richard by that at that point was already in the wheelchair so we uh, i announced he would know, he got the lifetime achievement award we went to commercial and i went over next to him next to his wheelchair and gave him the award and he turned to me and he said uh, in that distinctive voice he said uh, he said i stole your album i, I said what what richard He said, I stole your album in Peoria. He said, I went into a record shop and I put in my jacket.
2: <laughs>
3: and i said well you know i said well you know richard i get 25 cents an album and and, and, he, and he said give me a quarter somebody give me a quarter and and he gave me a quarter <laughs>
0: oh, for 50 cents you could have signed it right oh my That's god right. I, I gotta go back to that first grammy celebration in in 60 uh though bob you know the other nominees against you were, were harry belafonte Nat King Cole, a Brahms recording, a Puccini recording, and Frank Sinatra. Nice. Frank Sinatra. Now, I grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey. Y- you don't mess with Frank, and you beat him.
3: <laughs> well, I understand. It got, it, we got to know Frank later on toward the end of his, of his, of his time, and it uh, got back to me. He was not too thrilled with having lost the album <laughs> of the year to a comedy record. But then again, it didn't take a lot to upset Frank. Right, know? right, I mean, right. Wind or a bird or you know that could set him off for the whole day. A bad but, hand at uh, the crap table. Yeah, exactly. We and we got to be we got to be good friends, you know. But uh, he he wasn't thrilled when when and I had no as I said before I had no conception of what it meant. It just oh okay. And my daughter, I had these 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 three um, Grammys in in the den, and she thought they were bookends.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> until she saw the grammys and she said, "Oh, those are oh, that's what those things are."
1: Grammy awards, yeah. yeah. And, and this is only the 3rd year. <laughs> Who knew that they were going to last? You know, let alone you said you you didn't know if your career was going to last. The Grammy Awards were only in their 3rd year. Now they're in their 50th year.
3: Yeah. It wasn't even televised at that time. I had to go into New York. It was some ballroom in New York.
1: Do you recall who gave you the Grammy, who actually presented it to you? I mean, that was the most prestigious award in, in the uh, recording industry at that time.
3: You know, I don't. It's all a blur. It, it really is. Yeah. The first five or six years of my career is just a blur. I just kind of was, went along with whatever was going on. You know, you're doing a Sullivan show. Okay. When's that? Thursday. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, it is an absolutely extraordinary story. But but you were—I mean—you were an accountant just outside of Chicago, and you were a funny yep. guy. So so, but a friend of yours basically introduced you to this disc jockey. One thing led to another. Warner Brothers uh, had somebody here in Chicago. They said, "So oh, this guy's funny. Let's make an album." And you had literally—is this true? Literally, never performed your comedy act on stage until it was recorded.
3: What happened with this disc jockey Dan Sorkin in Chicago? Dan had me record the stuff and. They presented it to Warner Brother Records and um, they listened to it and they said, OK, we like it. We'll record it at your next nightclub. And I said, well, see, we have a problem there. I've, I've never played a nightclub. <laughs> and they said, well, we'll have to get you into a nightclub. So they got me into the, the Tidelands uh, in Houston, Texas. And I walked out in February 1960, uh, terrified, absolutely terrified, but uh, – you can't, you can't show that, you know, in, you're dead meat in front of an audience if, if they suspect you, you, you're terrified. Well, now that was fine. That, that was a wonderful turn. It, it's hard for me to believe you only had two lessons after you make a, a turn like, are you sure you haven't had more now? <laughs> well, I, I find that very difficult to believe. One little thing, uh, this is a one-way street. <laughs> Well, no, no. Actually, it was partially my fault, you see. But uh, you were in the left-hand lane, and you were signaling left, and uh, I just more or less assumed you were, you were going to turn left. <laughs> uh, same, same to you, fella. We actually recorded it Friday night, and then two shows Saturday. And the Friday night, I had a drunken woman in the, in the front table, and all. Through my routine as we're recording it, she kept yelling out, That's a bunch of crap. <laughs> That's a bunch of crap. And through and so we went up and listened to the tape and and she was clearer than I was on the tape. <laughs> That's a bunch of crap. Which probably should have, would've have, would have been a, a good title for, you know for the for the album.
0: Yeah. Well, now we can do a remix and put that back in. <laughs> oh, my God. So so it's an inspirational story, Bob. Maybe uh, young musicians out there in their basement in Oak Park today can still, you know, have a hope of breaking through and best new artists just basically stepping in it. I mean because, you know, look – let's face it. In Chicago, right, Mavis Staples, Curtis Mayfield, Smashing Pumpkins, Buddy Guy, Muddy Waters, you've won more Grammys than all of them.
3: <laughs> I didn't know that. It's true. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Congratulations, Bob.
3: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks,
0: right. thanks so much for being on Sound Opinions.
3: I loved it.
1: In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll talk to pop collage artist and biochemical engineer, Girl Talk.
0: Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. No one can tell.
1: What you're hearing is an example of the work of Greg Gillis, our next guest on Sound Opinions, a.k.a. Girl Talk. It's a track from his album Night Ripper. It's called Hold Up, and it's an example of the sample-based composing that he does. He takes samples from pre-existing recordings, jumbles them together, creates new compositions out of them. You heard a little bit of Mariah Carey, James Taylor, Ludacris, 50 Cent, Timbaland and Magoo, Pixies, Young Guns, and Nas. Spliced together into an interesting new hybrid, Fascinating area of music, Jim, from our next guest Absolutely, Greg Greg Gillis is way up there in terms of the Cutting edge of
0: electronic music today And he was touring the U.S. with another Great electronic musician, Dan Deacon When we caught up with him
1: We welcome Greg Gillis of Girl Talk To the show
4: How you doing? Hey, Greg
1: Hi. Good to have you here, Greg You've had an amazing 18-month run here with an album called Night Ripper. Basically a series of sample-based compositions. About 200, 250 samples went into making this record?
4: Yeah, I know there's 167 artists, but I think... <laughs> I, I know that's factual, but I don't... I reuse some of the artists twice, and there's a lot of samples I can't remember where they came from, just individual snare hits and stuff. So probably between two and 300 total. Wow.
1: so And that's in the space of about 42 minutes. There's about 16 tracks in this song. So that would average like five, six or so samples, seven samples per minute, mm-hmm. basically. A long tradition of this art form. We're, we're talking about collage-style composition going back to serious composers like John Cage and Karl-Heinz Stockhausen merging it with a pop sensibility. So you're bringing this avant-garde idea of collage-sample-based composition into the world of pop music. And Some of these samples that you're using on this particular record are uh, hugely famous artists. Mm. Madonna, Puff Daddy, people like that. And none of these samples have been cleared for, uh, for use which is uh, in itself causing quite a controversy. But uh, does, that, does that make officially, Greg, the uh, biggest outlaw we've had on the, on yeah, the show I, in the history of sound Fe? I, I think, you know, according to copyright law in this country right
4: now, you've got about <laughs> 250 copyright <laughs> violations on that record.
0: They're all waiting outside the studio, Greg. Why don't you freak him out a little more, Greg, before we get into the music? That
4: was intense setup.
1: Uh. Yeah. And yet, and yet, uh, it needs to be said, an amazing piece of art, not only works on the dance floor works on the headphones in the time that this record has been out nothing but praise for this record you started out 18 months two years ago playing to 100 people at shows now you're just headlined a festival in australia where you're playing in front of 20,000 people <laughs> so people like this stuff uh no cease and desist
4: orders from the major labels you're kind of revolutionizing the record business as, as we speak greg right? It's interesting just to look at kind of the history of the sample-based things and just the problems people have had over even, you know, a couple years ago, even with Danger Mouse and things like that, where, um, yeah, I think it's just a changing era where 2008 people are, you know, they realize CD sales are declining and people need new ways, viral marketing huge and I think record industries are trying to figure out how to work YouTube and foul sharing and all that into their advantage. So I think something like this record happened to come along in you know good time. That's really interesting because it was only about
0: a year or a year and a half ago that we interviewed the Beastie Boys on the show
4: and we were saying, you know,
0: what would it take for you guys to revisit and try to break more of the ground that you broke with Paul's Boutique mm-hmm. and they all just kind of like with this heartbroken look, looked at us and said, we, we couldn't make that album today. Oh yeah.
2: I looked out the window,
0: and yet you're saying now, a year and a half later, it, actually maybe you could. Are, are the copyright
4: owners starting to see what YouTube and, and mashups and stuff like this can do for them? I can't say 100% because, I mean, with this record it was my third album and the other ones were, you know, just a cult-falling underground sort of thing. So with those, I mean, we put out Night Ripper just kind of ex- expecting a similar response. I knew it was a bit more accessible, but we didn't realize it would get this far. Then once it did, you know, we kind of expected at least to cease and desist. And I can't really say, I mean, I've interacted with major labels and a couple of the artists involved on the album. You know, they've all said positive things, but no one has ever said, yeah, Yeah. we like the way this is helping out our artists. I've never heard of that directly. Major labels have come to me and, you know, asked me to do remixes and things like that. But I can't say 100% why um, I haven't had a cease and desist. Well, just
0: the fact that you have not had the subpoena server show up. And it's not like you're hard to find when you're playing gigs for 20,000 people. Right. You, you know what I mean? Let, let's, uh, Greg, I got this scoop out of Mr. Gillis before you got here. He, you have finally been able to quit your day job as a biomedical engineer. Now, that's an impressive thing. I mean, to have learned that and have been able to make a living doing that. And now to leave it for music.
4: Yeah, I mean, I always, you know, I was in bands in high school, and I've never been traditionally trained in any instrument. So I've never really, you know, I've always made music, so I guess it makes me a musician. But I've never considered myself a real musician by traditional standards. So I've always just done music as fun. And I went to school for biomedical engineering, just always doing it on the side, playing shows, touring when I can. So, yeah, it was never a goal to break out at some point and be like, I'm going to live off of this. It just happened to get really crazy with the response to Night Ripper. um,
0: Well, I've heard you were even really responsible. You might leave early on a Friday afternoon, but you made sure, even when you were going on a
4: plane overseas, to be back on Monday morning at work. Yeah, I played uh, one show with Beck on a Saturday in London, went to work on Friday and flew back and got into work on Monday morning. So, yeah, it was insane. And, like, starting last October for that whole year pretty much, I played shows every single Friday, Saturday, not one taking off. So it was hard for me to realize. Once it got big, I knew I was making money with the shows, but it was hard for me to be like, wow, this can be my profession. It just got to a point where I was kind of drained physically to the point where I was like I have to pick one because I'm going nuts trying to keep up with both worlds. How do you get into something like this,
1: Greg? Um, it's obvious, maybe, how a young person would be inspired to pick up a guitar. They see Kurt Cobain or, mm-hmm. or you know, John Lennon playing a guitar, and they go, I want to do that. But your emphasis in music is a little bit more esoteric. How do you get into sample-based composing on a computer?
4: Um. Well, I got into, um, I was pretty into lots of pop music growing up, but then I got into Nirvana uh, when I was in middle school, and that got me into Sonic Youth, which got me into weirder noise avant-garde stuff. So when I was in ninth grade, I was in a noise band, just completely far out, unlistenable all sorts of things. And at that era, I mean, I still liked pop music, and I followed a lot of hip-hop, but I was in a noise band, and I found out about John Oswald, who kind of... Pioneered a lot of this They call it plunder phonics But he did yeah. stuff in the 60s and 70s With cutting up physical tape and doing collage And I just loved that I thought it was amazing that you could make Really far out difficult music But at the same time it could be you know Appealing on a surface level Because it has all these familiar sources I was into that, and then and um, computer music, laptop artists started to take off a bit in the late 90s, and I heard Kid 606 do a remix of N.W.A. Straight Outta Compton, which I think was in, like, 98 or 99, and that was the first time I heard someone take a computer and digitally just massacre a song and rearrange it, <laughs> mm. and it just seemed so punk rock and so exciting that you could do something like that.
3: You are now uh, witness to <laughs>
4: I got a laptop going into college in 2000, so I was like, my high school band's done, why don't I just start a band where all it is is me kind of cutting up pop music. Mm -hmm.
1: And and in terms of, you know, doing this kind of thing for a living, uh, obviously that's what you're doing now, but... I take it you never envisioned this being at the level it is now, where you're playing, you know, arenas. Last summer, you and Dan Deacon played the Pitchfork Festival in Union Park in the middle of Chicago in front of 19,000 people. Nearly ended the festival because there were so many people trying to cram Mm -hmm. in to that small space. You don't envision this kind of music
4: being played in front of 10,000 people. I mean, did you ever have that sort of vision of where this could go? No, and I think especially because there was no... You know, there was nothing to look up to necessarily. Like for me, the heroes were Kid 606, who is a big, completely influential artist, had a lot of impact on electronic music. But as far as someone playing a laptop, because I never came from a DJ world, so it wasn't like I'm going to be this superstar DJ on turntables at a festival. It was always like when I started playing shows with just a laptop and doing remixes, if I was to be taken seriously as a band, and if venues would actually book me, if one person bought a t shirt, it was like, wow. I'm actually being treated like a real band <laughs> with me playing this laptop. So that was the goal. I mean, forever I thought it would be the greatest thing to be able to tour around the country and draw 20 to 30 people and just have a cult following and, you know, be able to tour around and make gas money. So there was never – you know, I never saw someone with a laptop sell out shows or have these crazy festival performances. So there's really no one ever to look up to in that regard. So it was never – I mean, it sounds like I'm trying to be modest, but it's very serious that I have was never – ever envisioned it getting to this point you know now, but is is that true greg because there
0: was this moment after cobain was dead and alternative petered out where the major labels thought that the electronic underground was going to be the next big thing sure. and you had aphex twin Sure. You know, and now in retrospect i mean you have to look at this and say richard james was putting out this music on a major label And Moby, obviously. But, you know, Moby had success well after, you know, the first four albums he made. These were going to be the new techno stars. Now, the underground reacted to that negatively because, you know, part of the electronic rave culture was that there are no stars. Right. The DJ is just like us. We are the DJ. We are
4: all one dancing mass of people.
0: So it didn't really take off. Right.
4: And, you know. and I think that is true. I should backtrack a little bit that there was craft work, and there was all these people who were huge and doing electronic music. But, I mean, from my perspective, it was uh, – so, I mean, I'm not saying I was pioneering in any way by being no, on no. a laptop doing that. But just, you know, I always felt a little bit – Aphex When I always really enjoyed. Even, I think, for something like that, it's it's always like I'm making live, uh, original electronic music. You're coming to this concert. Whereas with me, I always try to push an idea that this is – Original compositions made out of other people's material, but just kind of bridging the gap between the DJ and electronic music thing, it was always so ambiguous about what my role should be. Mm. Should I just play in, in a DJ booth, or should I actually put on a performance? You know, what even where I belong, what sort of venues I should play was up in the air. So in that regard, I think that was what made it very confusing. As far as you know, there's no. I should be like this person who does this right. this, this laptop collage artist. But, but a lot of people are venues. saying,
0: you know, critics are saying that you and Dan Deacon have figured out a way to become rock stars, albeit ones who are playing, you know, laptops. Deacon is doing it much more in the old school Pink Floyd way, mm-hmm. you know, with, with these crazy videos, right? right? You're doing it. You're like the Iggy Pop of the laptop.
4: <laughs> I mean, you're a monster on stage. It's funny because um, I've always been completely sincere and very serious about making the music. But I think with the early days of the performance – The presentation of it was a little bit ironic just because I would be given a 20-minute slot to open up for a band, and I would show up on my laptop, and I would kind of present it like you are watching The Who right now. This is the greatest (laughs) rock show you've ever seen, even though there's 15 of you sitting. You know, I'd have fireworks, outfit changes, dancers because there was people touring the country at that time with laptops, and I'd go to those shows, and I was interested in it. I didn't want to be one of those guys who was just sitting there kind of looking bored, no, looking it's, like it's, they're checking their email. It's,
0: there were other acts at Pitchfork in the last couple of years that were these Laptronica acts, and they come out, and they set up, and they sit there, and you sit there, and 45 minutes go by, you know, and it's, that's
1: like, that's cool, but... Well, you know, the, the image is that they're these kind of studious-looking guys, and, and they're sort of <laughs> hunched over, you know, hunched over their little keyboards or their or their turntables or whatever, and it's you like you're not watching anything, and I remember distinctly going to see the Aphex Twin at a show at the height of his uh, success, and he would, literally was lying down on a couch twiddling knobs for an hour. And, I mean, it was like, okay, the sounds great, but I could have sat at home and watched this. Yeah, but on the other hand, the Orb and Moby put on very exciting well, shows. Well, I'm seeing the flip side of that is I think the reason it's appeal is that you know, you're not afraid to put a face on it. And you're in the crowd as much as you are up there, you know, (laughs) playing the laptop, dancing naked, half naked, part part of the audience. audience. Well,
4: I think a lot of the bands that do electronic music maybe don't think about the live presentation when they start. So you just make this music, and you have to figure out how you're going to do it live. Whereas with me, I mean, based on my high school band, it was so uh, performance art oriented that the second I started doing Girl Talk, it was like, well, I'm going to have live shows. I think a lot of electronic people unlike dan and i don't really have the background of touring for years and playing the nobody i think that's a very character building experience you kind of figure out what you want to do live and i think dan and i basically figured out how we want to do it based on playing the nobody and do it for years and years and years and then once people start being interested it's like you kind of have this well-oiled machine as far as what you want to get across with the show
0: tell us uh, exactly uh, greg what you're doing on stage
4: I actually do everything as live as sound collage could be live. It's I use a loop-based software, so I have just a whole bunch of like maybe two or three hundred loops lined up, and the arrangements are all done beforehand. So I kind of practice. It's like writing a song, and I keep it different than the albums. I kind of change it up every couple weeks or whatever, and uh, every time you hear a change in the music, I'm actually clicking the mouse. can leave the computer because the same stuff will loop over and over and over again. But for me to change it, I mean, and everything's as isolated as possible. So it's like hand claps, kick drums, vocals are all different loops. So at any point I can just bring in a hi-hat or take out a kick drum. So it's pretty much, yeah, the arrangements are set out and then I'm actually up there actually performing these collages that I've, you know, put together.
1: I think people still don't appreciate what goes in to making one of these collage-based, sample-based compositions. People think, well... When when they think mashup, they think well, a vocal from one record and a rhythm part from another record. You put the two together, and voila, you've got a song. And that takes what about thirty seconds. Anybody could do that. <laughs> right, right. And yet, you know, clearly there's a there's an editing process here, minute edits, speeding up, slowing down, playing with the texture, recontextualizing the, the music. Give us an example of how you would put together a typical track um you know you've you've done three uh girl talk
4: records. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you put together a typical track for one of those records right now I'm working on another album. I just started last week, so this is fresh on my mind I mean the way I always do it is like I was saying before, I do arrangements, work on those for live shows, and I change them up every so often, try to keep current with pop music and change it up depending on the city. So I just have a whole bunch of material kind of i that's how I write the songs you know quote unquote just preparing for the live shows and then after doing shows for a year you can look back and say okay well here are my favorite combinations of material And you have these just raw ideas this song with this one this one with this one and then I kind of go back through and actually put it down on record I record myself playing live but then I go through piece by piece and kind of just take out little bits and pieces of each and kind of go second by second so it's funny though because I mean once you start to put down a record you have so many different combinations and so many different ideas it's very nerve-wracking try to be like what's going to be the best 40 minutes. I can sit there just, you know, just a couple days ago, sit there for, you know, eight hours just figuring out a five-second transition, just what is going to be the best song. Um, and I, you know, really just go about going every second by second, just kind of figuring out the raw ideas already there, but it's just kind of the details of it and how I transition from part to part that's really the
3: work.
1: You know, I wanted to ask you, too, Greg, uh, we we alluded to this earlier in the interview. I wanted to get back to it. Um, You uh, record for a label called Illegal Art, Mm -hmm. run by one Philo T. Farnsworth, who was uh, named himself. It's a pseudonym. Named himself after the inventor of television. Mm -hmm. An interesting guy, university professor in, in Illinois somewhere. He only uses a P.O. box, has never been interviewed live, and keeps himself very anonymous, but a really smart guy. And basically, everything he's put out on his label, including your records, sort of challenged this idea of copyright and uh, fair use. Mm-hmm. What is fair use? My question to you is: If if this stuff were to become legitimized, which which Philo says, you know, this is my ultimate wish is that you know this this is fair use. We, we should be able, artists should be able to use pre-recorded material, recontextualize it, and create new art out of it. Uh, we had Lawrence Lessig, a famous uh, professor out of uh, Stanford, on the show, basically making the same argument if this stuff does become legitimate if it is found to be you know legal to use these these kind of uh, art, uh you know recorded sounds in a new way um and there would be no legal consequences does that remove some of the the thrill of it the fact that it's no
4: longer outlaw and underground and, and you know yeah, in that I respect yeah i think so i mean I've been approached by a couple major labels who threw out the ideas of being like, why don't you remix the past 40 years of our catalog into a mix <laughs> sort of thing. And that is appealing. And I mean, I do feel like, you know, if it was completely legal, some of the appeal would be lost. And I think that's why I didn't go with that project to do the major label thing. Just, just seemed a little bit forced and contrived. And like I was saying earlier, when I heard Kid 606 do the NWA remix, it was so punk rock to me it was just like this guy's just mangling these pop artists completely you know cutting it apart and doing what he wants with these untouchable sort of figures and that's part of the appeal and that's what I've always really liked about it you you know you have Elton John and Biggie Smalls and all these people who seem untouchable you can just do what you want with their work I think it's very yeah it's interesting and very punk rock to me
0: right, Greg Gillis of Girl Talk thanks for coming by Greg it's been a real pleasure to have you here
4: thanks it was
2: all a dream.
0: I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic Molly, Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on
2: private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to max. Remember rapping Duke? I'm the hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. I'm in the limelight, cause I'm wrong tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade. Born silver. The opposite of a winner. Remember when I
0: used to eat sardines for dinner. Peace to Bra G, Brucey V, Kick Debris. Fuck Masterplex, love, bump, star ski.
1: To give us your comments on girl talk, illegal art, or anything else we talk about on sound opinions, give us a call on our hotline, one 88 859 We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of Sheryl Crow's new album plus my Desert Island jukebox pick.
0: Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Cheryl Crow with a song called Shine Over Babylon from her new album, the sixth of her career called Detours. Greg, Cheryl, for better or worse, has long since reached that level of celebrity where the personal narrative is impossible to separate from the artistic output, and so I feel obligated to note that in the two years since her last album, Wildflower, she ended a romance with star bicyclist uh, Lance Armstrong, she won a battle with breast cancer, she moved to the hillside outside of Nashville, and she adopted a baby. All of this plays into detours. In fact, that's the name. These were all detours from her musical career, she said. Her last album, Wildflower, was was kind of an odd one, uh, you know, heavy-duty, orchestrated, dark, serious. This one takes her back to her roots. In 1993, the thing that put her on her map was Tuesday Night Music Club, produced by Bill Bottrell. She uh, split with him fairly quickly thereafter. Now she's back, making this new music on detours. I want to play a song from it, I think, that's fairly typical of a strain throughout this album. It's called Gasoline. Here it is by Sheryl Crow on Sound Opinions.
1: Gasoline from the sixth studio album from Cheryl Crow, Detours, in which she envisions sort of a Mad Max uh, post-apocalyptic uh, scenario. You've got gasoline-starved Spooky. gangs wandering the streets trying to, trying to find precious petrol. So, uh, you know, a little bit of a departure for, for Charlotte Crow on this record, Jim. As you mentioned, uh, she's starting to amp up the political content. She's not been known as a politically uh, inspired songwriter so much in the past, mostly talking about love and relationships. On this record, she deals with the outside world in a much more direct manner. In fact, the first half of the album is loaded with songs in which she talks about the crisis in the world on, on a number of levels, spiritual, economic and violence prone, you know, which is fine. I'm not sure I, I look for Cheryl Crow for guidance on politics, <laughs> yeah. but she's always been a very canny songwriter. She writes ingratiating hooks, breezy melodies, kind of stuff that's really easy to sing along to, even when you don't know what she's singing about. That trend continues here. What I've always found off-putting about Cheryl Crow is that you scratch beyond the surface and you go, what do you really have here? Who are you? Yeah, it, it, very facile. What intrigues me about this record is in the second half, where she starts getting into some of those more personal songs. She writes one about her adoptive uh, son, in which she talks about having to let him go when when he eventually becomes an adult. And it's a very moving song for a for a mother to be singing to her uh, to her new child. And don't forget the lances of bum songs. Yeah, well, there's lots of lances of bum songs here too. But even those are kind of raw. I, I love the way her voice sort of breaks in the middle of that song, Diamond Ring. Mm-hmm. It's one of the more emotionally affecting songs I think she's ever sung.
2: Some say love is oh so blind But I say love is only in the mind Diamonds may be oh so sweet But to me they just bring on free
1: The other song that really got to me on this record, Jim, is this uh, Make It Go Away song where, where she talks about the helplessness that you feel as a, a person who's been stricken with cancer and wondering, why am I in this predicament? How did I get here and how can I get out of it? And just sort of the, the helpless feeling that you have in the midst of something like that.
2: Sometimes I wonder which hurts worst The thought of dying or reliving every hurt With love, the illness, and disease, the cure all oh, the cure
1: for the first time, I really feel like I, I understand what she's singing about. There's a personal connection here. So well, I give her a lot of credit for that.
0: You cannot uh, really get too deep into Cheryl Crow because uh, her lyrics are about the depth of the average fortune cookie, okay? But I think she's a, a guilty pleasure. I mean, her way of uh, pairing great hooks with that kind of like husky barroom at closing time vocal of yeah. hers, you know, it's, it's just really enticing. And as much as I've tried through the years not to be sucked in by Sheryl Crow, you know, when it comes on on the radio when I'm uh, channel surfing I always turn it up because it's a great catchy song. When she did Wildflower was a real stinky disappointment. I mean that's a bad bad record because she wasn't soaking up the sun and she wasn't having any fun and it was a big drag, uh, an effort to make capital A art. Here she's despite these heavy topics you know despite singing about radiation treatment and an environmental disaster she's just kind of like upbeat and breezy and really catchy. For that reason I think I have to give it like a marginal
1: buy it i never thought i would agree with you on a cheryl crow record <laughs> or much less even want to hear a cheryl crow record i mean i understand why people have liked her her greatest hits are sort of a guilty pleasure but this record i i really feel like she's kind of gone to another level in terms of what she wants to sing about and as you said those damn catchy melodies oh, you can't are still of part head. of it so i've got to say buy it for this record
5: i tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched
2: Remember, we were shipwrecked
0: together. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a turn popping a quarter into the desert island jukebox, Mr. Greg Europe.
1: Thank you, Jim. When we were talking with Greg Gillis, one of my favorite artists of the last few years, we started talking about some of these uh, topics like sampling and, and plunder phonics and sample-based composing. Well, What does all that really mean? When we talk about the art of collage music, like Greg Gillis is doing with Girl Talk, I think you have to go back to somebody like John Oswald, who... Uh, Coined this term plunderphonics, basically plundering the past, reinventing it, recontextualizing it, and making it into new compositions. It's completely based on sampling pre-recorded music and and turning it into something new, reinventing it there was this whole trend of mashups that began in England in the late 1990s where you would take the vocal track from one record and lay it over the rhythm track of another record and you have a completely new composition. That art form was taken to the nth degree by an artist named Asimiso whose real name is Mark Nicholson. He was a DJ from the United Kingdom. His most famous sample-based composition is called Intro Inspection. That is a 12-minute song. It's only available on the net. You can find it trolling around on the internet, but you're not going to find it in any record store, and certainly not too many radio stations are going to play it, except for this one. <laughs> you're going to hear a little are bit of this next. Are going to get us kicked off the air? Possibly, because none of these uh, samples were uh, authorized. This falls under fair use, Jim. We are informing the public about a sample-based oh, yes. composition which uses 100 song introductions oh, and fuses them into an epic 12-minute journey. It's an amazing piece of work as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you've got everything from... The Doors, to Boz Lerman, to The Tramps, to Madonna, to Depeche Mode, to Eminem, to Lulu, to Chaka Khan, uh, all fused together in this composition. It's called Intro Inspection. You can find it on the internet only, and right now you can hear a little bit of it on Sound Opinions. with intro inspection my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week Jim next week we have a great show in honor of the upcoming Oscars we're going to pick our favorite soundtracks of all time
0: Greg we have some thank yous to say our intrepid production team is Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, with some interning help from Dave Mahler Uh, we want to thank Bob Newhart and of course our intrepid executive producer a guy we like to think of as our other brother Daryl Tory Southside Malatio. <laughs> on sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: Come on, and Answer your phone.
5: New messages. Hello, this is Andy from DeKalb. You're probably going to get a lot of phone calls about this, this whole vampire review thing. And I'm not offended that you don't like a record that I like. That would just be silly. But for real professional critics like yourselves, you'd think you'd be able to get beyond the hype, beyond the marketing scheme of an album, and just like it for the music. And Jim, just is sort of a bit of an elitist, pretty much not liking this band because they're from Colombia, because they're getting hyped, because they're doing something, I don't know, slightly different. I don't understand. But hey, what do I know? I'm just a listener. Hi, guys. This is Jeb from Chicago. Uh, Last week, uh, Jim accused Vampire Weekend of stealing African rhythms, which I think is incredibly naive. Uh, In an age of unprecedented cross-pollination in music and food and everything, uh, music isn't a solid, stable mass. It's free-flowing and borderless. And if people didn't steal sounds and influences you guys wouldn't even have jobs because there wouldn't be rock and roll. Thanks. Bye. My name is Jim Angel of the band Hark in Durham, North Carolina. I'm calling about the rock and roll food show that you had. Uh, I heard it on podcast this week. I noted that most of the songs that you chose, dealt with food as metaphors or adjectives. And there are a couple songs that I thought really fit the bill in terms of rock and roll, really talking about food. The first one would be Egg Cream by Lou Reed, which is really an ode to that drink. Uh, in the course of the song, he gives a recipe for egg cream. When I
2: was a young man, no big and this, a chocolate egg cream was not too big this. Some of you bet chocolate syrup
5: the second song is uh, Beans and Cornbread by Louis Jordan. In this song, Louis Jordan gets into the psyche of a great food combination and discusses a conflict between beans and cornbread and resolves them in the end uh, by concluding, we go hand in hand. What better homage to food could there be? I really enjoy your show. Thank you. Of
2: beans and they go hand in
5: hand. Hey guys, this is Percy from New York City. That was the dumbest show ever. Food and rock and roll. I'm a executive in marketing. Next month you should have uh executives in marketing and what they listen to when their marketing skills are uh, being practiced. That was dumb, but so was your show. Bye. Hi, this is Steve from Gurney, Illinois. Just finished uh, listening to the Anthony Bourdain episode and really enjoyed it. And I especially like the inclusion of the Neil Young song, Cinnamon Girl. That's a fantastic song. But in my book, if you're looking at the Neil Young catalog, you can't miss the song T-Bone, which has the great lyrics, Got mashed potatoes? Ain't got no t bone got no he got no t-ball. Thanks a lot. Bye.
3: No more messages.